Well, good morning. If you haven't already turned in your Bible, go to Luke 18. That's where we will be today. So over these last four weeks, this is the fourth week of our series, we've been talking about evangelism. And this series has been called Come to Jesus. And what we've done is each week we've looked at a unique character, a unique situation to see how does Jesus encounter them? How does Jesus interact with them? And what does Jesus, how does Jesus kind of speak into their life where they are? What does Jesus tell them? What does Jesus reveal about himself and inviting them to come believe on him as the Savior, as the Messiah, and as the God-man? So as we talk about evangelism in this series, we're talking about how people come to believe in Jesus, how they accept Jesus, and how they trust in Christ. So answer these questions, not out loud, but in your head. How would you answer some of these questions tied to that faith conversion language? So what do you think it means to accept Jesus or believe in Jesus or follow Jesus? What does that actually mean? Or if you're sharing the gospel with someone in your life and you want them to become a follower of Jesus, what is it you're actually calling them to do or believe or to make a response to? Or even today, if you claim to be a believer, what does it mean for you to follow Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean that Jesus is Savior? Well, Ray Ortland gives a helpful illustration on two ways to accept Jesus. And I think this applies to both the unbeliever and the believer. So today, as you hear this sermon, you kind of listen with two ears, and this is true with the whole series. On one hand, you're looking to see how does Jesus interact with unbelievers What does he model for us? What do we learn for how we share the gospel? But at the same time, we need to listen for ourselves. How does Jesus encounter us through this message? What does Jesus want us to hear and to learn today? So again, think with that, um, those two ears as you hear the sermon today. But Ray Ortland shares these two ways then to accept Jesus. He writes, a person can accept Jesus in either of two ways. One way we might falsely accept Jesus is just to invite him onto our committee. Give Jesus a seat at the table. Give him a vote, too. Let him make his case, and then the rest of us will decide for or against. But if this is how we accept Jesus, then he is just one influence among others, easily offset by other voices which yell and demand and threaten. This way of inviting Jesus into your life is common here in the Bible Belt where we live. But it isn't Christianity as defined by the New Testament. It's adding an element of religion. It's adding a little bit of Jesus as a minor influence into my already complicated self. The other way to accept Jesus is, struck by his glory in the gospel, to turn to him from the idols and say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my whole committee, every last one of them, and get them out of me. I hand myself over to you now. I want you to run my entire life. I want to serve the living and true God. Lead me into how that works. Accepting Jesus this way is not complication. It is salvation. Accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus. It is also subtracting our idols. End quote. And what we'll see today in Luke 18 is very consistent with that message. Coming to Jesus means giving up everything you have to receive everything he has for you. This includes giving up our own goodness, 
our own righteousness and finding it all in Christ. But it also means giving up our idols, giving up our worship, and finding Jesus alone to be enough. Jesus then becomes not just one voice in your life, but Jesus becomes the voice, the God who runs the show. And this is no small thing. The reality is that call, that biblical picture of obedience and salvation keeps many people from coming to Jesus. As we'll see with the rich young ruler, he loved his life, he loved his stuff, and he loved his idols. And so he ended up walking away empty-handed. Whereas others, we see these disciples, they forsake everything to follow Jesus, and they end up finding the one soul-satisfying thing they were looking for. So first, I want to look at this rich young ruler and consider, so who, who is this person? If each message is about an encounter between Jesus and an individual in a specific kind of circumstance, who is this guy? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story, and together we can put together the details, and that's where we get the name Rich Young Ruler. You know, poor Zacchaeus, a couple weeks ago we talked about Luke 19. Zacchaeus is forever known as the wee little man, and a wee little man was he. But this guy, he's known forever as the rich young ruler. That's a little better name to me. I mean, Zacchaeus sounds like Danny DeVito. He's a little bit short and pudgy. But this guy sounds like George Clooney or maybe Tom Brady. I mean, this is an awesome, wealthy, respectable guy. Maybe not Tom Brady. Yeah. This might be the kind of guy who should be on the front of Men's Health or GQ or up for Man of the Year. So listen to the way he's described. Here are a few things we see about this guy in the text. One, we're told he has money. And not just a little bit, but it says he is extremely rich. That's Bible talk for saying the guy is loaded. But it also says he's young, he's youthful, he still has his age. Religion, morality, and a spotless record in his culture, he's got that. Status, power, and authority, check. The title ruler, it likely means he's an actual leader in the synagogue or the Sanhedrin. And that's kind of the who's who group of the day. It's the religious in-group, and he's one of their leaders. But that also means he's educated and that he comes from a good family. He has a lineage to him. So then what we've seen is this guy has money, he's youthful, he's powerful, he's well-respected and liked by all, he's educated, he's a good guy, he's moral, and he's in the right religious group. This dude seems like he has it all. Everything is going well for him. So he comes to Jesus, with everything good in his life, and he asks the question, what must I do inherit eternal life? And this is a great question. In fact, it's the most important question. And he's not actually asking it to trap Jesus. A lot of times in the Gospels, when a leader comes to Jesus and asks a question, it's meant to trap him, and they have false motives. But here we have a guy who seems like he's asking the right question, and he's doing so with the right motive. Here is a genuine seeker. Here's somebody who wants the something more of life. He wants to know, do I know God? Is God on my side? Am I part of his kingdom? Am I justified and saved? He wants assurance that life with God now and forever belongs to him. There could be a sense that despite all that he has, all that he has going for him, this still is not enough. There must be something more. 
But he might also be asking the question to be affirmed that he's doing enough, that all his good works and his religion and his law-keeping will pay off in the end. This guy might assume that Jesus will kind of give him a pat on the back and say, keep it up, you're already doing it, brother, you're good to go. And it's likely that both are in play here with this guy. So on one hand, it seems like he is trusting in himself and his goodness and his works, and he wants some of the affirmation to keep doing what you're doing because you're doing good stuff. But on the other hand, he's also sensing that everything I have isn't enough, and there has to be something more. I think both of those things are at play here. So as we move then past understanding, okay, I think I know a little bit about who this guy is, this rich young ruler. Let's see how Jesus encounters him. We'll learn two ways that Jesus redefines things, and he tries to change the perspective of the ruler as he points him to himself. The first thing we'll notice is that Jesus redefines goodness and righteousness. This person comes to Jesus with one understanding of goodness, that of comparison and being good enough and human works, and Jesus helps him see that he has the wrong definition. He has the wrong measure and standard of goodness. So let's look at the question and then see the response of Jesus. So look with me at your Bible, verses 18 to 20. It says, And and a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We'll pause there. Now for us reading that today, that seems like a bit of an odd response, like, Is Jesus just being overly spiritual and, oh, don't call me good. No one's good but God. Is Jesus saying that he's not God or that he's not good or that he's not sinless? What's going on in this reply of Jesus to this man? I think Jesus' response isn't meant to suggest that he's not good or he's not God or he's not sinless, but he's meant to kind of break down and deconstruct the guy's understanding of goodness. So it's not that Jesus isn't good. He wants him to know what goodness is and then how Jesus fits with that definition. Jesus understands that the man's understanding of goodness is off, and that this is a big part of his problem. The man defines goodness as, well, good enough, or comparatively good, based upon his law-keeping and the standard of doing his religious duties and acts. As we can see in verse 21, this man believes he's a good person. He says, I've kept all of the law from my youth up. So he understands that when he looks around, when he considers his life, I'm a pretty good person. So what else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so what Jesus does is Jesus immediately wants to recalibrate his understanding of goodness and righteousness so that it matches God's definition, not his own. Despite all this man's dutiful obedience and religiosity, he is not perfect, he's not holy, he's not completely righteous, He's not upright in all that he does. So for Jesus to get this man to a place of humility, a place of brokenness, a place of dependence, he has to show him that his small, earthly, comparative understanding of goodness doesn't compare to God's goodness and righteousness. This is a common problem among all of us as human beings. We use a human standard of goodness And then we look around and think, well, yeah, I must be pretty good. I mean, I'm a good father. I try to take care of my family. I try to help others. I try to do what I know is right. I try to be kind. I mean, I'm not a criminal. I try to do nice things for people. I'm a good person. 
And my bet is, and you could try this out this week, but if you asked a family member, a friend, or a coworker, what do you need to do to be saved or to get into heaven, most people will give some version of, well, I need to do good things or be a good person. And then the reality is most people I've interacted with, they think they're a pretty good person. But the problem, the reality is, we're using this human, fallen, kind of comparative understanding of goodness, and then we justify ourselves based upon that. But when we use the wrong standard, the wrong definition, the wrong measure of something, it gives us a misguided assumption and leads us in the wrong direction. Let me give an example of this so you get, okay, what do you mean? So for me, my wife and I, early on in marriage, I discovered that we have different definitions, different standards, different measures in the area of cleanliness or what it means to clean up. Now for me, my measure and standard of cleaning up was really just tidying up. It's taking junk from one room of the house and moving it to another room of the house or possibly a closet. It's getting the visible things out of the way so guests think you have a clean house. And occasionally, it might even getting a wet wipe and you kind of clean down the counters and you wipe the fridge. So that's me. That's my clean the house. We're good to go. But for Melissa, her definition and her standard was much higher. I mean, she puts on the cleaning glove. She gets out the solution. She is scrubbing things down. Her definition is that you do a deep clean, a deep scrub, and of every part of your house. I mean, for one example, I learned from her that you actually have to clean the shower. I mean, that doesn't even make sense to me. You're literally spraying it with water and soap all the time. And yet she shared with me, deep cleaning means you clean everything, even the shower. And so that was helpful because over time we've learned we have different definitions and standard of cleanliness. And this has been a great learning experience, or as we call a growth opportunity in our marriage. And we have lots of those. Um, But this demonstrates the problem that when you have a different definition, a different measure, a different standard, you might think you're doing something right, but in reality, you're way off. Now I had the single bachelor's definition of cleaning, and I learned there is a better, a higher, a more enlightened way of cleaning. And in our story, the rich young ruler and many of the people in your own world today, we have the same problem. We use a human standard, a human measure and definition of goodness and righteousness and what it means to be walking and worshiping God. We think we're good enough because those around us look similar or worse off, and so we think, I must be pretty good. But the problem is the standard and the definition of what we'll be judged by is not what we think is good and righteous, but it's based upon God's definition, a God who is perfect, a God who is holy, a God who is without sin at all. And so he's going to have a higher, perfect standard of goodness and righteousness. So we must compare our righteousness then, not to the people around us, not to what we think is good, but we must compare ourselves to God. When we do that, that leaves us realizing that we're pretty far off and we're not in a good state, which is a good thing because salvation is about being rescued. It's not about accomplishment. It's about getting something from God, not producing something for God. It's about being rescued. And Jesus helps this man by redefining for him what goodness is and what righteousness is. He wants to shift his eyes off of self and off of his understanding to a God-centered perspective 
of what is goodness and righteousness. So Jesus does this not only by kind of redefining goodness, but then he takes the next step and he moves into the Ten Commandments to kind of say, here's what that looks like in part. So in verse 20, Jesus says to him, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So here Jesus, he's not using the law to say, if you do these things, you will be saved, because we know no one actually keeps the law. The Bible tells us that the law, it reveals our sin. It convicts us, and it actually is the thing that pushes us to God. But here, the ruler actually has pretty strong defenses. In verse 21, he says, Well, all those things I have kept from my youth up. I've been a good person, and I've lived out the law. Now, he sounds a lot like Paul in Philippians 3 before his conversion where he says, I was zealous for good works, and I was zealous for the law. And later Paul says, now I count all those things as loss. Or this guy actually sounds like the Pharisee in Luke 18, verse 11, the Pharisee who boasts in his works and righteousness, the Pharisee who looks at a sinner, a tax collector, and says, I can't believe that guy. He needs the mercy of God. Well, this is a little bit what the rich young ruler sounds like, a guy who thinks he's good, and he boasts in his goodness. And one of the things that's interesting to me is how Jesus then responds. Jesus doesn't do here what he does in other places like the um, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually unpacks the commandments and say, it's not merely about the external act, like do not murder, but it's about internal thoughts and desires, like don't be angry. And so he could have showed this man, you think you've kept the law, but my guess is you haven't. You've at some point, you've lusted, you've been angry. But he doesn't do any of that here. What Jesus does here is he actually presses on his idols and he reveals that he worships money, not God. That he loves his stuff more than God and neighbor. Jesus doesn't argue with the man to try to convince him, hey, you're worse than you thought and you are pretty bad. He proves it to him by showing, let me show you your idols and your idols reveal where your heart truly is is. And we'll look next at idolatry, but I want to just pause there and consider how do we let the words of Jesus and goodness sink in? Well, the reality is I know today, no doubt, there's some of you in here who trust in your own goodness. You trust in your own works. You think, I'm a pretty good person. I must be doing enough. I try to live by the Bible. I try to do nice things for people. And so the reality is many of you might be trusting in your own goodness. What the Bible says is your goodness will damn you just as quickly as your badness. Listen to what Matt Chandler says about trusting self and trusting our goodness. He says, the message we usually hear from the pulpit is repent of your wickedness. Stop sleeping around, stop doing drugs, stop partying. I would agree that these things are sinful and need to be repented of, but that's not the message of Luke 18. Instead of calling out the overtly wicked, Jesus says this, you good husbands, you good fathers, you small group leading, church going, morally righteous men and women, you repent. Trying to earn our salvation through good works is just as God-belittling cross-mocking wickedness as anything on the pagan dark side of the fence. We tell ourselves, I'm a better man than my father was. I'm a good husband. I'm a good dad. I'm a good wife. I'm a good mother. I'm a hard worker. I'm involved in the church. And Jesus says, repent. That does not 
save you. That does not justify you. And the message of Jesus in the gospel then is not about being good for God, but as I said, being rescued by God. Jesus Christ, he was the only person who was perfect, who was righteous, who was good. And the grace of God and the wonderful life-freeing message of the gospel is that God sends Jesus to redeem you for your sin, to redeem you also of your goodness and your trust in your own self. So Jesus takes all of that, he takes your sin, but he also offers you a real and a true righteousness. He gives you that righteousness you need. But what we learn in Luke 18 is that only the humble, the broken, and the repentant get this. Jesus came to save the sick, not the healthy. Jesus comes for the humble, not the proud. Jesus comes for those who will look to God and God alone, not those who trust in themselves. And Jesus comes for sinners, not good people. Only those who give up on their goodness and come clean on their badness can be saved and redeemed by Jesus. Only those who stop trusting in themselves and trust in Jesus Christ alone receive this gift. So this is also then the gospel message we share in evangelism. Much of what you will do in evangelism is gently and lovingly helping people see sin for what it is, helping people have a better, a biblical understanding of righteousness and goodness and sin and who God is and therefore what salvation is. And as you kind of share this bad news with people and help them see they are worse off than they thought, that is hard news, that is bad news, but the good thing is we have good news. We have the gospel that shares there is a person in Jesus who did come to forgive you of those things. There's a person, Jesus, who came to rescue you. There's a person, Jesus, who came to restore and fix all the junk and all the mess in your life that you've caused by running your show. And so we can give ourselves over to him, let him come in, let him change us, and let him him forgive us. So that's the gospel we share. Well, now in verses 22 and 23, we see Jesus, he takes things a step further. He's already tried to redefine the man's understanding of goodness and righteousness, but it seems like the guy still doesn't get it. He still is saying, I'm pretty good. I think I'm okay. So Jesus now goes for the heart, and he reveals to him his idols as a way to show that despite his external success, his religion, his goodness, his wealth, all the things going for him, he is ultimately living for himself and not God. So in doing this, Jesus wants to, he wants to redefine what it means to worship God, redefine what it means to obey God and follow him. He wants to show him that all of that means making God the center of your life, not just a part of your life. That this means not simply including God among the many things we worship, but making God the one thing we worship. That it's not just adding him onto our already busy lives, but letting him take over our lives. So let's read Jesus' reply. So look again, Luke 18. Let's look at verses 22 and 23 now. It says, When Jesus heard this, he said, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So Jesus gives two commands. He says, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and then come 
and follow me. And again, Jesus isn't saying that if you sell all your stuff, you're saved. We're not called to that everywhere in the Bible. But what is going on here is it's a worship versus idolatry issue. That salvation and obedience and following God are about God having all of our heart and all of our worship. Jesus elsewhere, he summarizes the commandments as loving God first with your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And that's really what worship is. But in the Bible, what God often has to do is help people see that even though they're religious, even though they think they're pretty good, they don't actually worship God, or at least not more than their idols. They might believe in God, they might be around godly people, but they live for self and idols. They're externally religious and internally consumed about the things they want. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Meaning that whatever it is you treasure, whatever it is you value, whatever it is you love, whatever you put your hope in, the places you find your security, your rest, your satisfaction, and your significance, those are the things that really have your heart. The things you think about, you daydream about, you desire, those are the things you worship. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this, What is an idol? It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Or Brad Bigney says, An idol is anything that begins to capture our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So idols can be a sinful thing, or idols can be a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. It can be anything that we demand that, we demand that God to give us. It can be something that we treasure and value more than God. Or it can be something that we put our security in rather than trusting God to provide. If you're willing to sin to get it, or sin when you don't get it, then it's probably an idol. If you're willing to compromise your walk with God to get something, or compromise your walk with God when you don't get something, then it's probably an idol in your life. And part of the problem with idolatry for, sin, for unbelievers and believers is that we rarely can see what our idols are. We don't think idols actually exist. We think we're in control of our lives, we're following God, we're worshiping God, but the reality is idols have a power over us that blind us. We don't think that they're that big of a deal, or that we truly trust in them, or that we worship them, or that we're addicted to them. We think, well, yeah, I like this thing, but I'd be okay if it was taken away and I don't worship it. Yeah, that's important to me, but it's not a functional God. Even though the way we spend our time and our money and our thoughts and our, lot and our dreams and our affections, all those things show that we actually worship, God, worship those things, not God. So idols create a kind of slavery over us where we are helpless, but also we're blinded by their power and their hold in our lives. And Jesus knows that that is where this rich young ruler is, and so he helps expose his idols to show him where he's really at spiritually and what he needs. He shows him his idols to help him see that he ultimately needs to come to Jesus. So when Jesus asks this rich young ruler to sell all of his stuff and give it away, it's because he knows that wealth and the comfort and the status and the success and the respect and the pleasures that come along with it, those are his God. He would rather keep all those things and have the life he has right now 
than to give them up and be a part of God's kingdom. He can say he wants to inherit eternal life, that he wants to follow Jesus, but he wants this to be on his terms. He doesn't want Jesus to be everything in his life. He wants Jesus to just be a part of his life. He doesn't want Jesus to come in and shake things up and take over. He just wants Jesus to kind of bless and make things a little better. He wants God on his terms without change and without consequence, but that's not the way God operates. We'll come, to how this, uh, we'll come back to how this affects our evangelism at the end um, when we talk about applications. But I want you to again see the, see the man, see how he responds, and hear how Jesus kind of explains this. So we see the man, he reacts with great sadness. It tells us that he is sad. In other places it says that he actually walks away from Jesus. And it's all because of how much he loves his wealth and the life he has going for him. The choice was just set before him. Forget your religion, forget your goodness, forget all the things going on in your life. Do you want to come follow me? Or do you want all your stuff and the wealth and the respect and the life you have right now? And the truth is the idols have such a strong pull in his life, such sway, such hold over him, that he walks away from Jesus and he holds on to his wealth. He seems so close to coming to Jesus, but he can't imagine life without his money. And this is a sad and a tragic example of the power of idols and how hard it is for those in, li- for those in this life who have it all to lay that down. I think this is the only of our seven examples where the person actually doesn't come to Jesus. This person just walks away and says, no, I can't do it. I want the life I have now. So in the last part of our section, in verses 24 to 30, we see Jesus follow up this encounter by explaining it to the disciples. Now we're going to kind of skim through this because I don't think there's something new in these last seven verses. It's just Jesus explaining what happened in that conversation. So verses 24 and 25. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says here that it's nearly impossible for a rich person to be saved. Why is that? Well, whether it be your wealth or power or success or possessions, all of these things, if it seems like you have things going well and your life is put together, these things make it so impossible because you think, one, I have everything I need. What else do I need besides my stuff? And that makes it hard for people to see their need for Jesus. But it also helps them trust themselves. They think, I accumulated all these things. I've done this. This is a result of my work. Surely it must be works because God is blessing the things that I'm already doing. And so Jesus says, for a rich person, for a wealthy person, it's so hard for them to come to the kingdom because they think they have it all. They don't see their need. And their stuff is such a strong idol in their life. Now, because of that, I thought a good sermon title for this would be a 90s throwback, Mo Money and Mo Problems, but I did not win that over at College Park. Um, That's all right. Someday I'll get my title. Um, But look, we see how Peter responds. Peter actually says, Peter's always first to jump up and share and give his thoughts. Peter says, see, we have left our homes, talking about the disciples, and we followed you. And then Jesus responds, and he closes out our section by promising that for those who do follow him, For those who give up things in this life, for those who treasure knowing God more than anything else, 
they will be repaid beyond what they can even imagine. These are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God, and those in the kingdom will more than have all the losses made up for. They will be received by God, and they receive things from God. They don't earn them for themselves. What we see is that all that they receive in Christ will be worth more than anything they gave up or lost for Christ. The disciples are saying it was worth it, that he is worth it. The disciples gave up their little treasures, the few treasures they had, and in return they get eternity, they get life with God, and they get these years with Jesus. And then you have the rich young ruler. He holds on to his wealth, he holds on to his life, and he misses out on everything. He misses out on knowing God. He maintains all of his physical comforts, but he still does not have his soul satisfied, which is why it says he walks away sad and empty. So what we see in our passage then in Luke 18, it's true of all Luke 18 and 19, that Jesus receives the humble, the sinful, the needy, the God-dependent, but he rejects the proud, the self-trusting, and those who rely upon their own goodness or works. That Jesus must be everything to us if he's going to be anything to us. He must be all of our righteousness and all of our salvation, and he also must be all of our worship, the sole God we follow. So I want to close by just considering two applications of what we might see by the encounter of Jesus with the rich young ruler. First, we might notice that evangelism isn't just getting people to accept Jesus and tack him on at the end, but it's understanding that Jesus offers you redemption and a whole new way of life. Some evangelism conversations make Jesus sound kind of like he's needy and needs a friend, so make him part of your life, or that Jesus is just a get-out-of-hell-free card. But the problem with both of those ways of talking about Jesus is they miss this kind of gospel. They talk very little about God calling you to worship him above all things, about God saying, give it all up and make Jesus the sufficient and supreme Savior in your life. They miss that when Jesus says, I am Lord, that means I come in and I take over and I clean house, but I restore the things that I touch. Even as Christians, we sometimes act this way just by pushing Jesus to the margins of our life. But if you can recall that opening story from Ray Ortland and the two ways of accepting Jesus, this is a reminder that we need to help people understand what it means to believe in Jesus, what we mean by accepting Jesus and trusting Jesus and following Jesus, that you're not inviting him into the boardroom to take one seat, you're not giving him one vote among the many, but you're letting Jesus run the show. When we call people to Jesus, we're saying Jesus offers to come, be your king if you lay down your life and surrender it to him. He's not asking for a merger where you both have a say. Jesus is asking for a takeover, a buyout, where he runs the show of our life. And the good news is that always works out for our good because everything Jesus takes over, everything Jesus touches, he heals and he restores and he makes better. But the second thing for you, if you're here today and you're a Christian, this text is also a sobering idol check. All of us will struggle with idols, and these idols are the things that compete with God for our affection, for our attention, for our intimacy, and our worship. Our idols want to steal all those things, our relationship with God, our worship, our loves, our thought life. 
And the result is that we slowly drift from God. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. So we must ask ourselves, if there are counterfeit gods, if there are functional masters, if there's competition in our life between Jesus and an idol. And there are different things you can ask yourself to help reveal those idols. But here are a few questions. These are both kinds of questions to ask yourself, but even just good questions to answer right now. See, are there idols in my life? I know they're there. We know they're there. We all have idols. And so you want to identify them and you want to replace them. But this requires asking tough questions like this. Are wealth, power, success, and respect a good name? Are those things we treasure more than God or following him in obedience when it gets hard? And then how is that actually proven in your calendar, in your schedules, in your commitments, and how you use your resources? Is the success or popularity or opportunities for your kids more important to you than God? And again, does your calendar and do your conversations reflect that? You can say that God is central in your home, but do your kids get that vibe? Or do they think that education and a good college career and a good family and all those things, do they think those are the most important things? So what are the things you talk about? What are the things that you value in your home? Those reveal our idols. Or is there some sin or pleasure that you know is wrong, but you just can't or you haven't let go of it? You've never seen your idol, this sin, this pleasure, this thing you like as competing with God. You've tried to keep both, my idol and God. Or is there something in your life you've lived as if I can only be happy, fulfilled, and at peace if God gives me that? This good desire Has it turned into a demand? Is there anything you're saying in your heart right now? I'll never be happy without blank. Whatever that thing is, that becomes your idol if that's the one thing you think you need to be happy. Or finally, at school, at work, in your neighborhood, are you more concerned about what people around you think or about how to live rightly before God? Does this lead to laughing at things in the office you know you shouldn't laugh at? Does this lead to you gossiping just to be included? Does it lead to you crossing some lines you know you probably shouldn't cross? Or does it lead to embarrassment as your kids kind of reveal you're not a perfect parent with a perfect family? How do we respond, and how do those responses actually reveal our idols? John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory, meaning we're constantly pumping them out. We're always seeking after these other things that lie to us and hold out promises. So let's say this morning, maybe you can identify your idols. Maybe you know these are some of the things that are idols in my life. These are things I would sin to get. These are the things that when I don't get it, I get mad, I get angry, I spin out of control. So how do you actually change those? How do you fight those idols? How do you replace those idols if you can identify them? Well, we remember that idolatry is a worship issue. It is worshiping something other than God. It is giving a place and a value to something not God. Then we fight idolatry with worship. Or in other words, the way you fight idolatry in your heart is by cultivating worship and affections in your heart for God. This means seeing God for who he really is. Noticing his worth, his value, his beauty, what he provides for you, and how he answers those longings and those needs that your idols 
can't. And I wish I had a new way to tell you, well, this is how you experience and encounter God. But the reality is it's through the few things we emphasize all the time. It's through getting into the Word and having God speak to you. It's through prayer where you share your heart with God and you get to know Him. It's gathering with God's people. It's singing truth to your heart so that you feel it revived. Maybe you've even experienced this on a Sunday morning, that as you worship, as you hear the Word, that you feel your heart finally starting to come alive. What's happening is as your worship appetite for God is increasing, probably your appetite for idols is decreasing. Worship is our ammunition against idolatry. It is the stronger yes that allows us to say no to our idols. So the antidote to idolatry is worship, but the greatest threat to your worship of God, to your relationship with God, is idolatry. This means for all of us today and every day, we have to choose to fight that battle, to find our trust and our delight and our satisfaction and significance, not in things, not in our idols, not in our wealth, but in God himself. The truth is that Jesus never disappoints those who choose him over their idols. And those who choose idols over Jesus are never fully satisfied and at rest and experience the fulfillment of their longing. The rich young ruler, he keeps everything, but he gains nothing. And the disciples, they give up everything, but they get everything of value in return. So this is not only the gospel that we share, not only what we offer to people, but this is what we believe and live on, that Jesus must be everything, and that Jesus can be everything, that Jesus is worth it because Jesus is worthy. Would you pray with me as we get ready to worship and sing? God, we do confess that we are sinners and idolaters and we are constantly wandering from you that we love our stuff and we love ease and comfort and god we need you to change us that you would give us hearts that admire you and are in awe of you and love you god we ask that you would do that you would be patient with us in this fight so even now god as we sing may you stir up worship in our heart we know that you are worth it and that you are good We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.